The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Episode 49 of the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. It is our first show of the 2020 baseball season. Pitchers and catchers reported to spring training in both Arizona and Florida this week. With Bryce Holden, my name is Chase Medorski. Dude, baseball's back. The long wait is finally over. Would you rather retire to Arizona or Florida? Depends where. Scottsdale. Scottsdale is the answer. Really? Scottsdale okay. is such a nice, fun, beautiful city. But for re- you. How much fun are you looking for in retirement? You know what? I like to change it up. I, I don't need to be, you know, just another old Jewish person in Florida. I could be an old Jewish person in Arizona. And you know me, I'm still a sports nut. And I like the idea of if you live in Scottsdale, in my old age when I have nothing to do, I could go see the Diamondbacks. I could go see the Suns. I could go see the Cardinals. And if the Coyotes, by the grace of God, are still a team by that time, uh, I could see them too. Well... Does no city in Florida have all four? I don't think so. I mean, Florida has... Miami kind of has all four. Florida has so, so many teams. But, like, other than the Rays, who don't draw fans, and other than the Heat, are any of their teams actually ever good? Well, the Dolphins make me cry. The Dolphins make you feel like a baby and make you cry. Just like Hootie. I love Hootie. I feel like the Magic are perpetually, like, a 41-43 to win team. Yeah, they're in that worst spot. The Marlins are a joke. Marlins are a joke. The University of Miami football team and basketball team hasn't been good in quite some time. Uh, Sam's not even here to defend Miami, so I feel a little bit bad about that. But they are sick at baseball. That's because Simon doesn't. Simon doesn't even make the team. The Bucks are, I feel like, going to top out at nine wins every year, especially with Jameis. Jameis got eye surgery. Do you think that's like really? <laughs> I don't know what it's going to do. Well, I was reading about that. Like, do you think some team was like, "Hey, you need to get eye surgery, and we're going to sign him"? No, I think, I think his eyes just hurt. Like, I think Jameis just sold a quintessential piece of himself because much like when we would watch Eli throw a pick and he would do, like, the classic, like, Eli, like, shrug, goofy look on his face, like, Jameis would do the squint because yeah, he literally couldn't sit. I think Jameis is still going to throw a lot of interceptions. So don't worry, Bucks fans. My other thought is if Jameis has been – I don't remember if he's nearsighted or farsighted, but if he's been like this his whole career, how are you just getting the surgery? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, you won the Heisman in college. You won a national championship. You were the first fucking pick in the draft. How are the Bucks right away not just like, hey, let's just take care of this and you're good? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a great point. Because that's got to come up in some medical during the draft process. Or a medical when you go to the doctor every year and get a checkup and they make you look at the big E. It's true. Remember when <laughs> – you remember tennis pop-ups? Must have been 2012 when Nathan pegged Schumer in the eye. He couldn't read the big E at the top of the chart. <laughs> Schumer had a tough luck with eye. Do you remember when he got hit in the face with a baseball Different bat? Schumer. Different Schumer. This was Jacob Schumer. Jacob Schumer. Matt knows that it's an E at the top. Jacob. So you're telling me my roommate at the time pegged a 11-year-old kid? He was seven. Oh, my God. You're right. 
I think Nathan was 16, pegging a seven-year-old in the eye. And somehow that just sounds okay to me. Maybe we should edit this part out. No. We always let it ride. Put him on blast. Put him on blast. Uh, Make him defend himself. We'll have him on next week to defend himself. Uh, Big week in baseball. The Mookie Betts blockbuster trade is official, but there were some changes to it. Uh, The Angels and Dodgers trade fell through, and we got a lot more to talk about in Astroland. But as always, we are going to start with... The Yankee number of the week, which in this case is 49. Um, Number's been retired for quite some time. Um, Ron Guidry, Louisiana Lightning, he was the last player to wear it in 92. Um, And since then, he wore it as a coach in 2006 and 2007, but nobody has worn it since. Other than Guidry, uh, I mean, these are names I've never heard of, but uh, Lou Berberet wore it, Jim Bronstad, Bob Meyer, Stan Bashan, Charlie Sands, and Lloyd Colson. Never heard of them. Probably never will again. Never will even think of these names. Um, but I do want to give Gidry a little bit of love just because while you and I were just debating, do we actually know what ERA Plus is? Um, Which we do not. So it's 100. This is actually the explanation for it. They have it on Baseball Reference. So it's 100 times the league ERA divided by the player's ERA adjusted to the player's ballpark. So basically what it is, I think it's just. A oh, I like that actually. I think it's like a better version of war for pitchers because it goes season by season. It adjusts for park, um, and it allows you to compare different seasons of different eras. Yeah, I like that. I think Guidry's 78-year might be the best of all time. It really was something. That was a special year for Guidry. I mean, definitely the best Yankee pitching season of all time. Dude, 25-3. and I mean, I feel like when we talk... one seven four. Yeah, when you talk about (laughs) all-time great seasons... I'm just a mess over here. I'm dropping stuff left and right, spilling stuff. Um, (laughs) When you talk about all-time great pitching seasons, I mean, Gidry, like you said, 25-3, one seven four ERA, 16 complete games and 35 starts, 9 shutouts, 273 innings, 248 strikeouts, um, a .946 whip, 6.1 hits per 9. I mean, this is an unbelievable year. Um... And for those of you who are more well-versed in war than ERA Plus, his war that year was 9.6. Who won the MVP that year? Um, I'm going to say it was George Foster. Wow. Breaking news on my cousins. Breaking news. The, um, my oldest, well, oh, well, not my oldest, sorry, Ethan. The most respected cousin amongst my cousin community just met, messaged a girl on Hinge that dumped my other cousin two weeks ago. I should make for some interesting stories for years to come. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, like... There's a lot of... We're like cousins and Eskimo brothers, um, all of us, somehow. That's fun. It's... it. You know what? So the Holdens literally take keeping it in the family to another level. Yeah. That's, like, pretty epic. To answer your question... Sometimes um, it happens by accident, and then we have to... We figure it out after. Jim Rice of the Boston Red Sox won the MVP that year, the Hall of Famer. I mean, Rice had a pretty solid year, too, though. Uh, he had 315, 970 OPS, 46 homers, 213 hits, 139, 121 runs scored, led the league with 163 games played because that was the year of the epic Yankee Red Sox, um, Bucky fucking Dent home run for the Red Sox to lose and blow a 13 game lead in the division. That wasn't enough to get Gidry the Cy Young over, or the Gidry the MVP over Rice. I think today that would have been enough to swing it. So here's another thing that I didn't even see. Um, Rice also led the league with 15 triples that year. That's a lot of triples for a guy who also had 46 homers. What was his uh, his OPS that year? 970. Led the league. Yeah. 
Because he wasn't a big on base guy. Uh, OBP was only 370. Well, his slugging must have been. He only walked 58 times, but he slugged 600. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing with Gidry and the MVP is, I mean, you look at the past few times pitchers won the MVP. Uh, the National League, it was Kershaw in 2015. It was the last time in the American League was Verlander in 2011. You know, if there's any argument that a, play, that a position player should win the award, I feel like more often than none, you do give it to a, uh, the position player just because they have no other award to win. Uh, I guess. It's also they play every day. Yeah. They're a lot... It's a lot easier to show value when you're playing 162 or 163 games. I mean, the only glaring omission to what I just said that I could think of was uh, in 1986, Don Mattingly was going for back-to-back MVPs. They gave it to Roger Clemens, who also won the Cy Young. I mean, Mattingly that year, 117 runs scored, league-leading 238 hits and 53 doubles, 31 homers, 113 ribbies, hit 353 with a 967 OPS, uh, led the league with a 161 OPS plus and 388 total bases. But Clemens won the MVP award in a vote that wasn't particularly close either, which is surprising. Let me see that breakdown. Oh, 24 and 4 is good. But even his ERA was the, a run, was like, was 2 5. Gidry was 1 7. No, Gidry had a historically good year. I just think because he's a Yankee legend, but not necessarily a baseball legend per se, although Louisiana Lightning is an all time nickname. You know, that Gidry 78 year. Gets lost in the shuffle a little bit outside of the tri-state area, but number 49 for the Yankees, I mean, that, in my mind, has to at least be considered for one of the best single-season pitching years ever. Yeah, it has to be. Gibson, that year Gibson went ballistic. was Gibson, 68, I mean, he had a 112 ERA. They literally changed the mound because he was so dominant. His record's weird that year. It's like 10 and 9. No. Dude, I'm telling you, his record is like, it doesn't make sense. I think he lost a lot of games 2-1 to one, or 1-0. One I'll take a peek at that. But speaking to your prior point, though, about, you know, how was Gidry, you know, not enough with Game 163 to give him the MVP, to me that makes the season all the more impressive for Gidry because they literally needed every single one of Gidry's 25 wins to make it to the playoffs. Did he start Game 163? That I don't know offhand. You weren't there? I wasn't there. Um, Gibson was 22-9 and in 1968. Nine losses with a 1-1 ERA. One one two. His whip was point eight five three. Good year. I mean, Gibson. Uh, I'll cut myself short here, but uh, Gibson is another guy who, you know, because he didn't win three hundred games, didn't have a great reputation with the media. I mean, Gibson. If you ask me to name my all-time starting five rotation, Gibson is in there one hundred percent. Well, I will ask you to name your all-time starting rotation. Gibson, Bob Gibson, Nolan Ryan, Tom Seaver, Randy Johnson. Big unit. The big unit because I think you need a lefty. Um, and then I think my fifth guy has got to be Greg Maddox. Doesn't have the stuff of all those other four guys, but probably Maddox, Mariano Rivera are the two guys for me where if I my life depended on it and I needed somebody to throw a strike, they're the guy. Do you know who the third guy would be? Probably someone that is not good. No, it's someone who's had a good career and is a beloved baseball player, but definitely not, you know, Greg Maddox, Mariano Rivera. Bartolo? Bartolo. Does throw strikes. If somebody had a gun in my head and said, I need a pitcher to throw a strike, Bartolo would definitely be in the running because all he does is throw strikes. Like I said, you pick someone that wasn't very good. He has a Cy Young. He has a Cy Young. And I think over 200 wins at this point. Wins or kids? Maybe both. Bartolo's got 247 wins. If I'm not mistaken, he might have the most wins of any Latin American-born pitcher at this point. 
I think he passed Juan Marichal. Late, I think he did. I think he did. Late into no, that uh, sounds right. the 2018 season now at this point. Bartolo didn't pitch in the bigs at all last year? No, I took a year off. What a god. He's also shame. terrible. He did just sign with a Mexican League team, though, so maybe we'll see a little bit more of Big Sexy in 2020. Hope so. God willing. All right. So, going back to the Red Sox, you know, we talked about last week, Mookie Betts going to the Dodgers was all but official. There was a lot of kinks in the trade. Um, And earlier this week, the trade was finalized between the two teams, but it was seriously reworked and repackaged. So, Mookie Betts and David Price are going to Los Angeles. They are in Dodgers spring training camp right now. Uh, The official trade was Mookie, David Price, and $48 million to the Los Angeles Dodgers for Alex Verdugo. And then this is where the trade got... uh, Messed around with a little bit. Uh, they gave up top infield prospect Jeter Downs and minor league catcher Connor Wong. Uh, both of them are heading to the Red Sox. And again, how great is it as a Yankee fan that Mookie Betts got traded for Jeter? Uh, yeah, it's uh, just great that he got traded. And it's going to be even better when the Yanks and Dodgers face off from the World Series because all Red Sox nation is going to be, I don't know what the word, what's the most appropriate word I could say? Seething. Seething. Red Sox Nation will be seething during a Yankees Dodgers World Series. And the best part is I was saying that this to you I was saying this to you before the show. I mean the Yankees historically have absolutely owned David Price. And the fact that if we get to the World Series is a better than not chance we're gonna get David Price in game three, that would be awesome. But is that gonna be at Dodger Stadium or Yankee Stadium? Who has more wins this year, Yanks or Dodgers? I actually think it's the Yanks now. I think it's the Yanks. And it's nothing on the Dodgers. I just think the National League is much deeper as a whole than the American League. And I think the Red Sox just got that much worse. So I think the uh, the NL West is pretty poor. But the Yanks' schedule shouldn't be that hard. Yeah, but I mean, if you look at the rest of the National League in general, I mean, the Diamondbacks, I think, have the skills to be a 90-win team this year. Yep. I think given the offseason they've had. I think the Padres will at least be like a 500 team. You'd hope. The Giants, Giants are going to stink. The Rockies are going to stink. But again, they still have to play the NL East a bunch. Um, and other than the Marlins, everyone in the NL East should be in the hunt for a playoff spot. And honestly, I think the entire NL Central, other than the Pirates, will be competing for a playoff spot. Yeah, but they might be competing against each other. They might be. You might get four eighty-five win teams there. That's true. But compare that to the American League. I think the Blue Jays top out at a little bit above five hundred. Um, the Orioles. The Orioles, the Tigers, and the Royals are all going to be, and the Mariners, I'll say, are all actively competing for the first pick in the draft. I think the Angels will be better, but especially now, and we're going to talk about this a little more, now that they don't have Ross Stripling and Jock Peterson. Well, they still can't pitch. They still can't pitch. Um, The Rangers will be better. I think the pitching staff is going to be really good, but I think their ceiling is 90 wins. Um, That's a high ceiling. I just think there's better talent. There's more parity in the National League. I'll say that. That'll be my final statement on this. And you really don't know what's going to happen with Houston. Correct. Um, so Kyle Bloom, the new Red Sox chief baseball officer, uh, when he announced the blockbuster, said it's reasonable to expect that we're going to be worse without bets and price. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, he anticipates a competitive roster that can realistically compete. Um, and he said while he expected to keep bets for 2020, teams step forward with increased offers over the course of the offseason, and the ultimate package achieved constitutes a major step forward for the Boston organization's future in Bloom's view. Um, you may recall originally the trade was going to be uh, Bruce Starr, Gratterall, um from the Minnesota Twins, but again, the medicals, they said, you know, didn't really check out, even though the Twins said all along and even brought Gratterall up last year. I as thought a Gratterall, pitcher. Didn't Gratterall go to the Dodgers? Correct, but I'm saying from the Red Sox perspective, 
You know, they didn't love the medicals because they wanted him as a starter long term, but everyone knew he was going to be a relief pitcher. Um, Kyan Bloom did pretty openly say that, you know, the, the original reaction to the trade and the fans' perception had it just been Gratterall and Verdugo. That had absolutely nothing to do with them reworking the deal. Um, but I think you and I both agree that's a crack of shit, right? I, I think the fans' perception had to have played into this a little bit. You, I mean, it's tough because the deal wasn't finalized. So there was a lot of premature reporting, which is a whole separate issue. And, but that original package was awful. That, yeah. was ter- that was terrible. Without downs, it was an awful deal. So it's interesting to see, um, you know, when reporters had asked Bloom specifically about getting under the competitive balance tax or the luxury tax, um, Bloom said, it's worth reiterating the goal to get under the CVT is not an end in itself. It's part of a larger goal, our biggest goal, which is to put ourselves in a position to compete and win sustainably for as many years as we can and using our resources effectively is a means to that end. It's a part of that goal. So we wanted to get under the CVT and we weren't going to do it in a way that wasn't going to help us with that bigger goal. The CVT was not a major factor in us deciding to do this deal as much as it was a goal with us this offseason. They should have reworked the JD contract. They should have done everything they could to keep this guy. Or just to get JD to not opt in. They're lunatics for trading Mookie Betts. I just look. I mean, like, you, you weren't necessarily going to re-sign Mookie. And again, you don't want to lose him for more than a competitive balance pick. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I just think with that lineup, you know, if you had gone into next year with Mookie, Devers, Bogarts, and JD... Uh, and even Ben Attendi to some extent, like, and I think Ben, ben Jackie Bradley, you know, I think Ben Attendi is a clear five of that group. Um, but those first four, I mean, those are they had players. Those are perennial all stars at this point. I mean, Devers at three thirty last year. Mookie Betts, or uh, excuse me, Bogarts for a while was flirting with sixty doubles, which as a shortstop in particular is outstanding. Um, I think Devers was only going to improve more and more. It, it just seems like you know, if Sale bounces back. Eduardo Rodriguez had a very big step forward last year. He won nineteen games, struck out over two hundred batters. You know, I think the biggest thing is here. The issue wasn't the bats; it was going to be, you know, can we retool the pitching? I think and David David Price has been good to his. 40s. David Price was good in the first half last year before he got hurt. David Price is a good pitcher. I, I just think the biggest thing here is if you were going to make this trade. You know, you, Verdugo and Jeter Downs, I think, could be, you know, franchise centerpieces in the lineup for years to come. But the lineup wasn't the problem. It was that you have no pitching. And especially once you need to get Gratterall, I mean, they're pitching this year. You know, even MLB.com on the Red Sox depth chart, they only have four starters listed. Like, this team needs to figure out the fifth starter option still. Bartolo. Uh, whether it's going to be Bartolo or, like, an Andrew Kashner retreat type. You know, I heard Jeremy Hellickson was going to be in the mix, but he actually just announced his retirement. Edwin ja- I think Edwin Jackson just signed somewhere. You know, it's it's just like at a certain point, with or without Mookie, this lineup was going to be good. But the biggest issue was your pitching, and you did absolutely nothing to address that with this trade or in free agency. This commercial with women looking at their armpits. I, I think we need the volume. I'm going no volume on that. It just. Strange. I think it's better left to the imagination. Can. But what do you I think? I mean, what do you think the Red Sox are doing at this point to just, you know, shore up that rotation a little bit? You know, Brandon Workman was just named the closer, but Kimbrell's gone. The bullpen isn't getting any. They're going to lose. They're going to have a bad year. <laughs> they traded their best. They traded the best player they've had in a hundred years or seventy years since Ted Williams. This guy is the best player that franchise has had. All that said, though, I, I mean, I do think the consensus is this hall was better than the original hall. Um, Downs is the number 44 prospect in baseball, and yes, was named after Derek Jeter. Uh, he was the number 32 overall pick in the 2017 MLB draft out of 
Monsegore Edward Pace High School in Miami Gardens, Florida. Uh, last year, actually, he was dealt from the Reds to the Dodgers as part of the Yasiel Puig trade. Uh, but he's 21 years old, hits for average and power, split last season between Class A Advanced, Rancho Cucamonga, and Double A Tulsa. Hit a combined 276, 362, 526, 24 homers and 86 ribbies. Um, but the big thing is, once he got up to Double A, um, he hit 333 in 12 regular season games there. And then in the playoffs, hit 349 to 391 uh, with four homers and 10 postseason contests. But what does it say about a guy who's already been dealt twice? I think it's just a matter of circumstance. I think when Jeter Downs got traded from the Reds to the Dodgers, honestly, I think he wa- he wasn't a top 100 prospect. He was a solid prospect. It was kind of not a throw-in in that deal, but just a deal to help push it over the edge. And I think the Dodgers developed them. I mean, again, 20 to 21, that's a year where you can make a big jump. God, all these players are so much younger than me. Yeah, I mean, I think if you're the Red Sox, especially now that you know that the Pedroia era is officially over, you know, I think your glass half full approach is, yeah, you lost Mookie, but at least, you know, with Verdugo, hopefully Verdugo is one of your outfielders for the future. And then hopefully in downs, you're going to have seven years of team control. I mean, who knows at this point with the next CBA, but you hope that this is going to be your second baseman of the future. I guess that's, that's like maybe a glass three quarter or like two quarter or not two quarter like a quarter full yeah and for what it's worth uh connor wong the catcher they got last year in his age 23 season between high and double a 24 home runs hit 281 336 541 24 doubles and 82 ribbies also struck out 143 times uh, but again anytime you can get a pretty offensive heavy catcher uh even though he's 23 you know even if you trade it for a backup catcher those are still good to have um, but again, you got maybe your second baseman of the future, maybe your right fielder of this future, and say a backup catcher for Mookie Betts. Awful. They weren't even that far apart on contract negotiations. If the Red Sox offered him three and he wanted 420, there was probably a middle ground to be reached. Yeah, I think I think Mookie, rightfully so, once he hits free agency, he's going to want to you know, surpass Trout's 10 for 365 that he got as an extension. And the big thing is, with Trout, he, there was no bidding war. He agreed to that number with the Angels uh, and owner Artie Moreno. I mean, Mookie, on the on the free agent market, you saw what happened the last time when Machado and Harper, you know, transcendent-type talents hit free agency in their prime. They got paid, and it's been two years since then. I think Mookie is a significantly better player than both of those when either hit free agency. Even Rendon got seven for 245. Garrett yeah. Cole got nine for three twenty-four. Yeah, Mookie was gonna get more than that, and the Red Sox would have paid when push. I, I don't know what they were thinking. I think this is really bad. And I mean, look at the end of the day, Mookie's career in Boston isn't necessarily over. They could now that they've reset their luxury tax, in theory, sign him in free agency. They tried that with Lester, right? They tried that with Lester. I just don't see any scenario where Mookie plays for the Dodgers this year and they let him go. They've never broken the bank for the free agent. Uh, in free agency, and if Mookie wants a combination of, you know, winning media notoriety and a sustaining talent base around you, there is no better team other than the Dodgers. Yeah. And I'll even throw the Yankees in there. The Dodgers, I think, long term are even set a little bit more than the Yankees. Well, they don't have any big financial commitments. They have no big financial commitments, and and you just look at this Dodgers roster; it just seems like. And, and the Yankees, to their credit, I mean, we developed Judge, Gary, you know, Severino, Glaber on some level with help with the Cubs. But, I mean, you just look at this Dodgers team, old and young, you know, whether it's prospects who they brought up, which is Bueller, Kershaw, Will Smith, Gavin Lux, Bellinger, Jock Peterson. Um, 
or just guys they signed off the scrap heap. I mean, again, Justin Turner and Max Muncy are two guys they brought in on minor league deals who are now multi-millionaire and all-star players, and all the credit there just goes to the Dodgers coaching staff. Yeah. They're the best-run organization in the league right now, and that's why they can make a trade for Mookie Betts, knowing with a certain amount of confidence that they'll resign him. Yeah, so the luxury tax thing, I mean, I, I know when you and I look at it casually, you know, we say I can't believe how cheap they are. Um, but Jason Stark broke it down for the athletic. Um, and, and I do think, yes, they were just being cheap. But these are some numbers worth sharing just so you can have some idea of what was going on with the Red Sox perspective. Um, so I'm just going to read this verbatim with what Stark were because I'm not even going to try to explain it on my own. Stark said, say the Red Sox decided to keep both bets and price. According to Fangraph's roster resource, they were headed for an estimated payroll of $235 million for competitive balance tax purposes. That was down slightly from the $242 million payroll they finished last season with, but still the highest in baseball. Which, as a quick aside, who knew the Red Sox had the highest payroll in baseball? Makes sense. No, like, they're paying price, They were paying price stupid amount of money. They're paying sale ridiculous amount of money. Even Evaldi's making Evaldi, 17 a year. And JD's making 20, 25. Bogarts is making 20. You just don't think about it because a lot of them haven't been like glamorous free agent signings. but Because they're bad contracts. So regardless, so they were going to go over the first two luxury tax thresholds with this trade. And even a modest acquisition would have put them over all three uh, thresholds, which would have put them in the 95% tax penalty. Uh, the first two thresholds for reference are 208 and $228 million. Um, so in an alternate universe, the Red Sox are now over all three tax thresholds. And let's say next winter, they decided to sign a free agent named Mookie Betts to give them Mike Trout money. We'll say 10 for $400 million. Um, the wet, now that they're over all three thresholds, they would be subject to a tax rate that peaks at 95%. And that $400 million contract would become $714 million after taxes, which would make Mookie Betts a $71 million a year baseball player. Isn't that what Ward would, would tell you he is? Correct. But players never get paid based on that. Just saying, if you're going to use a war, that's exactly what he would be worth. No, He's I a seven war player, right? Typically, uh, at least. Yeah, I would say like six and a half to ten range. Um, but get, because they hit the reset button, their tax rate on that imaginary bets deal next winter, should it happen, uh, would only be 20% instead of 50%, at least in the first year. Uh, so if they're in the 20% bracket, they would save $20 million on Mookie's deal in the first year alone. And even though that rate could rise to 30% the following year, they would still save another $10 million in year two of the contract. And the tax in the following years would depend on whether their payroll is and what it looks like. But nevertheless, the $30 million savings is pretty much a lot. So again, I don't agree with it. I, I think if you have a franchise player that you've developed and brought up and has been successful, you do everything in your power to keep them, especially as a big market team. Um, but at least these are some numbers that back up the claim that you know the Red Sox financially would have been somewhat crippled had they kept Mookie and then tried to re-up him. You can't let that kind of player walk. You can't lose that kind of. You can't. He come. That talent doesn't come around ever. I do no arguments here. You get a player like that once. Once, the Red Sox got this player once every. It's a generational years. talent. He's better. He's the best player since Ted Williams. Yeah, I mean, for what it's worth, uh, MLB Network just finished their top hundred players. Uh, Mookie was five. Bellinger was four. I think they were three and four. Three and four. I think Bregman was five. Yeah. Okay. So regardless, three and four. They were three and four. It's also crazy that Trout was one and Rendon is six. So uh, within the same city of the greater Los Angeles area. You have four of the top six players in baseball. Is Rendon the sixth best player in baseball? 
mean, I don't think so. But I guess in the same token, there were only two pitchers ranked in the top ten, Garrett Cole and Jacob DeGrom. So you can now say, what are the odds that the two best pitchers in baseball are pitching in the same city? I still think the four of the top six is crazier, but... Yeah, four of the top six is something. And what does it say about the... Four of the top six and three of those four, I think it's undisputable top five players. Bellinger has to do it another year. But I think right now, I mean, look, there is a degree of recency bias, but Bellinger hits, you want to go glove, like... What does it say about the Angels that with one and six, they are still not... They're still probably not even going to win the division. God, their pitching is terrible. That Pujols contract is really... It's not even the Pujols contract. Because they're still spending money. Yeah, I mean... What is going on? Why are they, they just so have, bad? They just have never really spent money to get a pitcher. The only time they did it was C.J. Wilson, and that contract was by no means crippling. I think it was like five for 70-something, but it was signed at the same time as Pools, 10 for 240. Uh, and they've just given out a lot of bad deals over the years. I mean, Hamilton didn't finish the year. Um, and we mentioned last year... Or he didn't finish the contract. We mentioned last year, other teams went to go sign pitchers. Their free, their free agent pitchers were Matt Harvey and Trevor Cahill. I know, I love those guys. And now it's Tehran. Now it's Tehran and Bundy. Two more of your favorites. God, Eric has lost so much money on Bundy. Probably one of my... That's so funny. He gave up... He got zero outs and gave up seven runs, and Eric lost like 50 bucks on that game. Doesn't learn. So, along with the bet trade being reworked, Kenta Maeda still ended up a twin. Um, But this, to me, is where the Dodgers really kicked ass. Maybe, and this is going to sound crazy, but... Maybe even more so in terms of filling a need than the Mookie trade itself. Um, so the official trade went down Monday. Maeda went to the Twins along with catching prospect Jair Camargo and $10 million from the Dodgers. Um, while Bruce Star Gratterall was on his way to Los Angeles along with minor league outfielder Luke Raley and the 67th selection in the 2020 draft. I mean, we, we talked about last week why Maeda would be such a big boost for the Twins. Um, but for me, for the Dodgers, you know, the biggest... Achilles' heel for the Dodgers these past few years has been the bullpen. It's the reason that Kershaw was left in at the end there, you know, to give up the home runs against the Do- uh, against the Nationals in the deciding game of the NLDS this year. You know, other than Jansen, who has been wildly inconsistent the past year or so, uh, they didn't have a ton of impact arms. And I think now in Gratterall, you know, if that bullpen pans out now with Gratterall, Blake Trinan, and Jansen, you have some great hard throwers in the back of that bullpen. And that's all you really can want going into it. You just want the options. And now they have a bunch, plus Joe Kelly. Yeah, I, I mean, I, Kelly, those four guys, if Trinan gets back to something like he was in uh, 2018 was when he was unbelievable. 2018, he had one of the, honestly, five or six best years for a relief pitcher maybe ever. He had an under one ERA. Not expecting him to go that route again, but if he reverts to all-star level or just quality relief arm, just load up with arms in the bullpen. How do teams not know this is the mold? This is a clear formula. Trying it in 2018, 9-2, 0.78 ERA in 68 games. Struck out 100 guys against only 21 walks in 80 innings uh, and had a 0.834 whip. That's really good. That's an outstanding year. Um, and this is where I think the Dodgers were big winners. You know, the twin, the Red Sox were originally going to get Gratterall. Um, and here the Dodgers fill a need in the back of their bullpen. Um and again, I, I, to me, getting the 67th pick in the draft isn't nothing. You know, a lot of guys who hit in the big leagues, it's not like the NFL or the NBA where, you know, first-round picks are usually the guys that hit. You know, if you pick a guy in the first four or five rounds, look no further than Mookie Betts, who was a fourth-round pick, 
Uh, to me, that's a sneaky get to also get the bullpen arm you need and this pick. Are you just talking about the Maeda portion of the deal? Just the Maeda portion of the deal. Well, they don't really have a need for Maeda either. Price can take over whatever Maeda does. Correct. They, they sold off their surplus of arms. Um, I, I, given now that they also gave up that pick and Gratterall, do you think that the Twins, in the reworked version of the trade, gave up a little bit too much for Maeda, who, yes, you know, has a lot of team control and has postseason experience, but, again, especially in the American League, I think tops out at a three-starter. No, because that's what they needed. I think the Twins are in a spot right now. They look at the division. You already said the Royals and Tigers are trying to lose 100 games. I mean, the Indians, we met, we were talking about earlier, you and I, Clevenger being out six to eight weeks. You know, I know I mentioned that the Indians could still, you know, make a run at the division. I think if Clevenger, if he starts, if slow, this drags into the regular season where yeah. he's out through May even, I mean, I think the Twins are going to run away with this then. And the White Sox are coming. I don't know if this is the year they get over them, but by 2021, the White Sox will be... I think 2021 is the White Sox year. I think this year, you know, you give Luis Robert, you know, Eloy Jimenez, all this young talent, one more year to develop. You give Michael Kopesh one year back and Tommy John. But then I think 21 with this lineup fully intact. Another then, year experience for Giolito, And then Giolito, Kopesh, Keuchel in that rotation. That's a so good this, is, this is the Twins window. And you really don't know what's going on with Houston. So maybe the Twins end up with two, play... And don't have to play the Yankees in round one. Maybe this is the year the Twins actually get back to the ALCS. I would like to see it. Guys, a Yankees fan, I'd love that. So, you know, we mentioned how the Angels don't have any pitching. And they had a trade all set to acquire Jock Peterson and Ross Stripling. Uh, again, Jock, while waiting for Joe Adele, would have given them a great leadoff hitter. Maybe platoon a little bit with Pujols at first. You know, 35 homer power to play all three defensive positions. Uh, in the outfield, Ross Stripling, former all-star arm. Um probably would have immediately been the second-best pitcher in that rotation behind Otani. You think of, do you think Otani's a pitcher? Yes. Going forward? Yes. 35 starts a year? Maybe not 35, but I, I think he is a pitcher. I think if anyone can work it well, Madden's probably the right guy to handle this. But I, I, you can't, he's already had Tommy John, right? Yeah, I think that's a positive, though. You get, I think it's better to get Tommy John out of the way when you're young. I thought I needed it because I was doing curls the other day. <laughs> Just how useless I am at the gym. So this it really hurt my elbows doing this. 52 curls. So this was the only part of the Mookie bets and surrounding trades that fell through. Um, Angels owner Art Moreno was reportedly unhappy with the delay of the original deal, but it's unclear if that was the driving factor in the breakdown of this deal. Um, John Heyman reported the terms of the original deal were dependent on the original bets trade, um, but I think now... From the Dodgers' perspective, you know, there was no need to give up either of those guys. You got Gratterall, you got the arms, why why let them go? Yeah, and uh, they did have to give up downs. They had to give up that, that bat, so keeping Jock for the extra year. I still think Jock could be a good trade piece down the line. But I don't, what were they getting from the Angels? Um, infield, infielders. That trade never made a whole lot of sense to me. In the first place, from the Dodgers, other than just having too many bodies, yeah, I think they can. I mean, the Jock, there was Jock and Stripling. That package at the deadline can get you something. That can get you a real piece going forward. So yeah, before I get to that, Billy Epler, uh, the Angel GM, said there are a lot of components and deals that need to be satisfied before you get to a point where you were calling players and informing them. We weren't able to get to that point, and in fairness to our players and players with other organizations, we won't comment further than that. Um, but yeah, Jock is 
making a little over seven and a half million this year. I mean, last year, 127 WRC plus, 30 plus homers. Stripling is a former all-star. I mean, that package at the deadline is affordable. And if you're a contending team, you know, you package those two guys for a prospect, that could be what gets them over the hump. I, I just I think the Angels on some level let pride get in the way here. They were frustrated that they were kind of second fiddle in this whole thing. Um, and to me, it's a huge missed opportunity for the team just because those were two pretty glaring needs that you could have filled with not a huge opportunity cost and they let it go by the wayside they're the biggest loser in this other than the red sox who traded away mookie betts for no reason but these two pieces were i mean we, we just said they have one in six they have two of the top six players and they're not projected they're project they're probably projected to be in third behind oakland for whatever reason yeah honestly maybe even fourth Texas' rotation is really good. Like Stripling would have been a huge upgrade for them. Jock is a very quality bat. They need they need help because they will waste Trout. Trout is going on his ninth year, and he has never won a playoff game. He's only appeared in three. He lost to the Royals. He lost to no. I don't even think it was yeah, the Royals. They lost to the that they lost to the fourteen Royals. Was it or the fifteen or was it the Orioles that swapped them? No, I think that was the year they. I think that year, weird playoff bracket. I think was that the year the Orioles swept the Tigers. Yeah, and the Royals swept the uh, the Angels. Angels. And I think probably should have been the other way around. And one thing we didn't even touch on in this whole Mookie Betts trade and why the Red Sox were losers: Verdugo has a stress fracture in his back, um, so he's going to miss the start of the regular season for sure. I mean, they signed Kevin Pillar, who again, good clubhouse guy. They gave him four and a half million. Great glove, hit twenty plus homers last year. But again, that's a very tough pill to swallow that the guy you signed to replace Mookie, you traded for to replace Mookie Betts, isn't even going to be ready to play right away this year. Uh, and that Kevin Pillar is your Mookie Betts replacement for 2020, as of now. It's going to be tough for Verdugo to succeed in Boston. Huge. Like, one thing goes wrong, he will get booed. And Boston's, those Red Sox, they're tough fans. That's not a place where, ask David Price. That's a tough media market, tough fans. And they're going in. He's going in hurt and supposed to be the Mookie Betts replacement. Because at the end of the day, like you just said, he's never going to be Mookie Betts. Outside of this Mookie Betts trade, though, there was still a lot of other big news in baseball this week. Uh, one of which is that Major League Baseball announced on Wednesday the implementation of several new rule changes that will take place in 2020. Most notably, the previously reported three batter minimum for pitchers, the expansion of standard roster size from 25 to 26 players, a two-way pitcher designation rule, and a longer injured list slash optimal assignment minimum for pitchers and two-way players. Uh, so again, most of these – this picture you're showing me, dude, I took the picture. <laughs> no, he just de- he texted me that with no context. One of our good friends is an idiot, and one day many of our good friends are idiots. To be fair, <laughs> he texted me a picture of like two hundred tickets from an arcade for toddlers. I'll just add too. I mean, this is this was from an old bowling alley where they. I don't think the arcade games are ever played, other than when our camp goes to visit. Um, and he had like the fifteen hundred ticket jackpot, and I've been in his shoes before. The old woman behind the counter when he wins, like, looks like she's about to grab a shotgun and put you out of your misery, like old Yeller. <laughs> I can only especially with that guy, who's probably just screaming about it. Oh my god, I wish I saw it. 
So we'll go through these rules real quick. I mean, again, most of them have been reported in the past, but you know, we'll break them down because it is big news. So the three batter minimum, the official baseball rules have been amended to require the starting or any relief pitcher to pitch to a minimum of three batters, including the batter and then at bat or any substitute batter until such batters are put out or reach base or until the offensive team is put out unless the substitute pitcher sustains injury or illness, which in the umpire crew chief's judgment incapacitates him from further play as a pitcher. The three batter minimum will become effective in 2020 spring training and begin on Thursday, March 12th. Uh, I mean, to me, I think this is the most controversial rule. I just think, again, this is a fundamental change in the way the game has been played for 100-plus years. I think it puts relief pitchers out of jobs. Uh, Offense is going to go way up because of it. But something I just thought of that I'm curious uh, to know what you think. Do you think, like in football, when a team is running the no huddle and a player will kind of take a dive a little bit to slow the drive, um, do you think pitchers might fake injuries a little bit more if they clearly don't have it after you know not facing the three-batter minimum? I don't know. That's weird. This whole thing's weird. That's a real. I get the concept. It that will actually help pace the play. This rule will help that. This will directly help pace the play. I just don't think it's going to help that much. Uh, I mean, how, well, how often are people coming in for one batter? No, that's true. I, this is going to sound really dumb coming out of my mouth. I think two would have been better than three. I know it wouldn't have been such a fundamental change time. Well, the question, my question is, if you go in with. Two outs in the seventh. Get the first guy. You got to pitch the first two batters in the eighth. You do. You do. Well, that seems like a fuck-up. It's three batters. It should be or completion of inning. I think it's three batters. I think that amendment would be nice. I think I'm on to something. I agree. Um, in terms of active rosters, rosters through August 31st and the postseason. Active rosters from opening day through August 31st and including postseason games shall be increased from 25 to 26. And clubs will be permitted to carry a maximum of 13 pitchers from opening day through August 31st plus postseason games. This I'm all for uh, as well as in September rosters from September now until the end of the regular season. All clubs must carry 28 players on the active roster and a maximum of 14 pitchers. Uh, to me, this is this is good twofold. Um, one, that 26th man, I think that allows each team to, one, get another guy up in the bigs. But two, you know, I think from a depth standpoint, that's very important, um, especially in the American League where you use the DH. So it's one you know less bench spot that you're permitted. Um, but I just think the biggest thing here is, you know, Buck Showalter's been saying it for years. Why in September when the games matter the most are you giving your team way more players? And I think 28 is perfect middle ground for that. Yeah, 40 is a lot. Doesn't, yeah, that really doesn't make a whole lot. And I also think I think this is a better rule to stop the pace of play than the three batter minimum, honestly, because by allowing teams to only carry a maximum of X amount of pitchers, there's only only so many times you can go to the bullpen at this point. True, but again, I haven't seen a full baseball season. In, I'm on 13 years. I guess you watched last year pretty much the whole thing. Yeah, but there was a week I was out of the picture. That's just a week. It's true. It's not seven or eight. Um, This one was unbeknownst to me, the two-way player designation. Um, Players who qualify as two-way players may appear as pitchers during a game without counting towards the club's pitcher limitation. So again, this is like Brandon McKay, Otani, Michael Lorenzen. Um, A player will qualify as a two-way player only if he recures both at least 20 major league innings pitched and at least 20 major league games started as a position player or designated hitter with at least three plate appearances in each of those games and either the current championship season or the prior championship season. The club must dedicate that player as a two-way player in advance of that game, and once a club designates a qualified two-way player, that designation will remain in effect and cannot change for the remainder of that season and postseason. This seems like ridiculous and not super relevant. 
No, I, I think it's I think it's relevant because you do have Otani, McKay. You know, you have guys who are position players who pitch. Um, to me, though, I mean, this is just hard. You know, like Michael Lorenzen is a relief pitcher. You know, I, I think the twenty games started as a position player for a pitcher. You know, generally speaking, that's pretty tough to come by. I think that to me is what makes this rule hard. Yeah, I don't know how often this is going to apply. Besides, is it a rule made for three guys? It might be. <laughs> Seems it seems unnecessary, but for the handful of teams that it will benefit, it'll be cool, I guess. Yeah, this is a, I don't know if this is a wide. It's cool. I don't really get it, to be honest. The whole thing doesn't didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Doesn't seem like it's that important. Seems like something that if you have the podcast on real loud and you ha- listen to it with your friends and you took a dump and missed these three minutes. If you missed this one rule explanation, you didn't miss much. So, but something that is interesting, though, is, you know, I, I think you'll agree with me. One of the highlights of a blowout one way or the other is you get to see a position player pitch. It's objectively bad for the game, but as a fan, it's great. It's fun. They've taken that out. Um, their new position player pitching rule is any player may appear as a pitcher following the ninth inning of any extra inning game or in a game in which his team are losing or winning by more than six runs when the player enters as a pitcher. Do you think this was necessary? That's no what? I mean, that's usually when it happens, anyway, right? One is you're. I mean, I'll just uh, I don't know. Pick any random player. Let's go with Jorge Soler. Soler's not getting on the mound if it's a competitive game. Like, you're not wasting. You're not putting him there if it's close. You're only doing that if it's at least six, because I think you can kind of justify a comeback with five. Six is tough. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's again. I think this is more. You know, if a manager just doesn't want to burn through his bullpen, you know, you go into the dugout and say, hey, guys, you can give me an inning or two. Um, this is one, again, I think is unnecessary, and it does take a little bit of fun out for the fans. Way to go, Manfred. Manfred's a real fucking asshole. Manfred is – he's done – he's – again, we said it a few months ago, but if you had ever told me that we would miss Bud Selig's PR skills, um, and this is, again, the guy who presided over the PED era and baseball's first canceled World Series ever. But compared to Manfred, he he looks like I don't know who someone with he looks like Tom Hanks. Ooh, I like that. My teacher said something weird about Manfred. I think at a meeting she had with him, Manfred said he wanted to be remembered as the commissioner that helped the brand of baseball. And he, I mean, we'll mention this in a little bit. I think that's the biggest issue Trevor Bauer is taking. That's his. No, he's that's putting his, he's putting business and uh, I wasn't supposed to say that. But that's his person. That's his private goal. He wants to be known as the guy that helped the brand of baseball. Yeah, I mean, he's putting business and the bottom line over the game itself in a lot of ways. I think so. He's got to look in the mirror. Two more rules. One um, in terms of injured list reinstatements for pitchers. Um, that's increased from ten to fifteen. Um, which again, I think the ten day injured list. To me, that was a bullshit thing. That was like if you want a guy to skip a start, you put him on the 10-day injured list with a phantom injury. I think 15 days for any player should be the minimum, honestly. To me, there was no reason to get rid of the 15-day IL or DL, whatever. Yeah, again, this is – these aren't like super impactful rules. They're just kind of annoying. There's like a very slight nuisance. So one thing – this is, I actually do think is a tangible thing to speeding up the pace of play. Managers will now only have up to 20 seconds to challenge a play. That's not enough time. <laughs> but to me, I think that's the spirit of what replay should be. It should be bang, bang. It shouldn't be you're watching the replay monitor for a minute plus and then go, oh, we want a challenge. Like, it should be like in the NFL, it's happening in live time, you throw the flag. 
But why don't they have it like, uh, I guess it wouldn't work. I'd say you have until the next pitch is thrown, but that wouldn't work because if the team pitching wants to challenge them. Eh. I guess, all right, good job. All right, equal opportunity. Good job, Manfred. So those are rule changes that are in place, um, but Joel Sherman of the New York Post reported that uh, MLB is seriously weighing a move from five to seven playoff teams in each league. And this, is, and this, more than anything, speaks to what you just said about Manfred being the guy who wants to build the brand of baseball. Um, so That's if, his goal, not mine. Those are his words, not my words. Not our words. His words off the record. Ooh. That's what the teacher said. Off the record. You. You know what? If Rob Manfred somehow listens to this podcast... We'll take the punishment coming our way. My, my te- I, I, like, she's a good teacher. <laughs> she listens to this podcast. So in this new concept, the team with the best record in each league would receive a bye to avoid the wild card route and go directly to the division series. The two other division winners and the wild card with the next best record would each host three games in a best of three wild card round. So the bottom three wild cards would have no... First round home game. The division winner with the second best record in a league would then get the first pick of its opponent from the lower three wild cards, and the other division winner would pick, leaving the last two wild cards to play each other. To use the AL last season as an example, the Astros with the best record would have received the bye. The Yankees with the second best record would have had the choice to pick from amongst the Rays, Indians, and Red Sox. Boston had the worst record of the group, but the question then is, would the Yankees pick them to avoid the baggage of a series with their rival? It would create a ton of strategy and interest, and this is what MLB wants to Who sell. Who would you have picked? I would have picked the Red Sox. We owned them last year. And Sale was hurt. Okay, if yeah, if it's a playoff series against Eduardo Rodriguez and... Price. Eduardo Rodriguez, Price, and Porcello against... Oh, yeah, we packed Severino, Paxson, and Tanaka. I'll take my chances. And we only need to win two at home? Uh, yeah. So the plan is to have all this play out on a Sunday night, um, like when the regular season ends, and have representatives picking lives on TV. Think the NCAA selection show, um, but just with the teams making the selections. Again, the biggest part here is that the rights to that would be something that could be bid on. Um, and... The MLB's deal with Fox uh, is running out soon, um, and their deal with ESPN and Turner runs through 2021, so the MLB can time the expanded playoffs as a lure for new deals with one of these networks. Uh, remember that ESPN can offer net, offer, also offer network television with ABC. Um, but, but again, I, to me, this, just, this whole thing seems very forced. Um, again, this seems like a, a distraction from the Astros. Yeah, I mean, there's greater benefit to finish with the best record in the league because you get the first round bye. There's also greater advantages to winning a division because you get to play that first round exclusively at home and pick your opponent. Um, There would also be no more tiebreaker 163 games. Um, The regular season tiebreaker would be what decides who gets into the playoffs. Um, And again, I think the idea is, you know, look at at a team like the Diamondbacks last year won 85 games. You know, they would become a playoff contender, something of that. Tony Clark, the union chief, said that he had no prior knowledge of these plans um, and indicated that he'd be open to considering changes as part of broader discussions. Um, <clears throat> let me just get your initial thoughts before I you know, really break this My down. My first thought – I have two thoughts, two big thoughts. One, you're letting bad teams in the playoffs. You're letting teams that don't deserve to be in the playoffs in the playoffs. And two, I think you're doing a disservice to the team that has the best record. And it's, that's a lot of time. That's like a week off. Yeah, I mean, that was one of Trevor Bauer's biggest points is baseball players, probably more so than any other sport, are creatures of habit and a creature of routine. Pitchers especially. It's not like, even in football with the week, which makes sense to give the best team a bye because real injury risk, 
But even the that you see, they kind of suffer. Like Baltimore was rusty. I think you'd be doing it a disservice to the best team. And my biggest thing is, you know, their argument is it will incentivize more teams to go for it. I actually think it's going to be the opposite effect. You know, you look if this was, if, I would way rather be the two get my. I would rather be the second team get three home games against the worst team in the league <coughs> or the worst. Team. I don't even. I don't even mean that necessarily. I mean teams that you know maybe like the 81, 82 win teams who aren't going to make a big move will now go for it to try to get. 85, 86 wins. I look at it from the opposite effect of the teams with the big money knowing that if they only win 90 games or in good position for a playoff spot, won't spend as much. Like, if you look at the Red Sox right now, if this was intact, they trade Mookie Betts, they go, okay, we can win 84, 85 games with this team and make the playoffs. Let's do the trade and get under the luxury tax. No problem. No questions asked. Yeah, this is a flawed system. I really think it was a floated out idea to distract from... The latest development in the fucking Astros bullshit. So it's interesting. So Tim Brennan of The Athletic looked from 2012 to 2019 and how the playoff bracket would have been restructured. Um, five teams would have made the postseason with losing records over the eight-year period with 79 and 83, the worst record to make the cut. Every team that won at least 86 games would have made it to October. The Rays, Mariners, Brewers, and Cardinals would have benefited the most with three added postseason appearances. And the Royals, Indians, Angels, Mets, Diamondbacks, and Nationals all would have made it twice more. If this format had been all in place all the way back to 1995 and the start of the wildcard era, the worst team to make the playoffs would have been the 99 Pirates, who would have ended their postseason drought years before they actually did with a 78-83 and 83 record. The best teams left, over, left out of the postseason would have finished 86-76. and 76. The 2001 Phillies and Dodgers, the 2004 Phillies, and the 2006 Red Sox, while every team with at least 87 wins would have qualified for October baseball. To me, 86-win teams should not be making the playoffs. One 86-win team can. Didn't the Cardinals... I think the 06 Cardinals had one, They won 80... I think even like 83. But that that shouldn't be an every year thing. You're like, you're lowering the bar. Yeah, like if one team gets into the playoffs, sneaks in and goes on a run, that's great. But if if you're telling teams to strive for 80-something wins to make the playoffs... You're like shooting for mediocrity. Like managers get fired after 80-something win years. That's bad for the brand. You fucking idiot, Manfred. So going hand-in-hand... I think I hit a lot more F-bomb happy in the second half of the show. So going along with that... Well, I guess it is every time I bring up fucking Manfred. It's going along with fuck Rob Manfred. Um, This is going to be the first of our Trevor Bauer (laughs) pop-offs. Trevor Bauer went off on Manfred in a six-minute YouTube video saying, I have no idea who made this new playoff format proposal, but Rob is responsible for releasing it, so I'll direct this to you. Um, your proposal is absurd for too many reasons to type on Twitter and proves you have absolutely no clue about baseball. You're a joke. Then in the video, he said, so Rob, if you're watching this video, you probably won't because you don't have a pulse on the game that you're commissioner of. But if you're watching this video and you want to talk to me about some stuff, you want some recommendations, hit me up. I'll sure you'll, I'm sure you'll get in contact with me. I'm sure you'll probably be finding me or something like that. Um, Bauer you probably will be finding Bauer. Some of the other things Bauer said, I mean, again, his biggest thing was, why are we expanding the playoffs when instead you could focus on marketing the game's biggest stars? And he mentioned how in the NBA, everything's about, you know, giving the biggest players brands, and especially on social media. Um, He mentioned how in one of your biggest markets like Los Angeles, half the fans can't even watch the game because of TV deals. Um, And he also just said, like, it's little stuff where, (coughs) like, players' cleats. Like, why does it even matter? Just let the players express themselves. And his biggest thing is you're doing all of this stuff that – and Manfred's eyes grows the brand, but you're not doing anything that actually benefits the game itself. But yeah, I mean, Bauer's 100% right. Everything Bauer said is correct there. He's, he is spot on with his criticism of Manfred. Manfred is really not doing a good job as commissioner. He's too legal-centric. His background is too legal. 
and he's not I don't know does he know baseball does he understand how the world works that I can't answer I don't know Manfred's doing I, I, really, I think there's going to be a labor strike oh, 100% there's just too many issues at this point that haven't had the proper steps to get resolved um, especially now I mean even before this whole sign stealing scandal you know just between the CBA and the idea of service time and free agency I think there was going to be a strike anyway um, I just think every action Manfred does stokes that flame a little bit more yeah, fuck Manfred would be the brief analysis. Hashtag bring back Bud. Also, is there anything worse than tracking a game that you bet on during the podcast um, and seeing that you lost because of a missed free throw on a one-on-one? Um, I haven't thrown a bet on an individual game since. And it wasn't an individual game. It was part of a large I haven't thrown game. a parlay. The last bet I actually lost, the last bet I threw was Preds to win the Stanley Cup before the season. Not looking great. I lost Devin Bush, Rookie of the Year. I lost Packers Super Bowl. That's it. That's all I've bet since the summer. That's good. I wish I could say the same. But carry on. So, this week in Astros land, um, whoever the Astros PR team, I, I just want to lead with this statement. They need to fucking fire these guys. Well, they <laughs> seem like idiots. Just seems like every single thing that they say and do publicly comes back to bite them in the ass. Um, and we'll start with so on Thursday this week, uh, the start of spring training, Dusty Baker, Jose Altuve, Alex Bregman, and owner Jim Crane faced the media at a press conference. Um, and to be honest with you, Dusty Baker, who in 2017 was managing the Nash- Washington Nationals, seemed like the only genuine one at this press conference. Well, that's why he's. That's why they hired him. They did a good job there. Yeah, they put an adult. A competent, respected adult in charge of the team. So here are some uh, Jim Crane hot takes um, that people are just absolutely torching him for. Um, He was asked the question, what do you have to say to the Yankees and the teams you beat in 2017? Uh, He said, the Yankees have had a few comments out there. Our opinion is that this didn't impact the game. We had a good team. We won the World Series, and we'll leave it at that. He later says, we are apologizing because we broke the rules and wouldn't concede the rules gave the Astros advantage, saying... um, I don't think I should be held accountable, Um, and again, that it didn't impact the game. He said it doesn't feel necessary to reach out to the Dodgers, and he said these are great group of guys who did not receive proper guidance from our leaders. Have you ever seen a public figure who is just more tone deaf to a controversy that they're surrounded in? No. This is awful. Didn't he also at some point say I didn't – he said that – he said I didn't say it didn't impact the game. Yeah, he backtracked afterwards, but I don't know how you could publicly, in your team's first public and comments in weeks... He, he just read off a piece of paper. I don't know how you could say it didn't impact the game. You know, all these players are coming out now... They're getting sued. I don't understand how you could say that a hitter, knowing a pitch is coming, isn't more likely for him to get a hit. I don't... <coughs> you can't. You can't confidently say that. Lars Anderson of The Athletic wrote a good article today where he said it's as simple as, you know, if a starting pitcher has three pitchers... You know, even knowing that against a lefty, he doesn't throw a slider, you can get it down to a fastball and changeup, that makes you a much better hitter. If you know what pitch is coming, it is so incredibly easy to do so. Um, and an aspect that he brought up that I never even really thought about uh, is player safety. You know, he talked about how in spring training, when you take live BP for the first time, usually the pitchers use a V net in front um, when they're throwing BP because the hitter knows what pitch is going to be coming, so they're going to rip the ball. There's a chance that, say, you know, if Alex Bregman knew a fastball was coming and he laced one up the middle because of it, 
Guys could have gotten seriously hurt. Didn't Trevor Bauer say that he would rather... Well, I don't know if it was, it was either Bauer or Alex Wood. They said they would rather face an entire lineup of guys on PEDs. 100%. I think it was both of them. Than a lineup of people who knew the pitch was coming. Yep. This clearly impact... I don't even think it's worth discussing whether or not this impacted the game. You're a fucking idiot if you think otherwise. So I think this... I think Jim Crane's poor choice of words was only punctuated by... They have Altuve and Bregman up there. And again, Bregman benefited from the trash can... Not maybe benefited from the trash can scheme the most, but... Uh, he was ranked the fifth he, best player in baseball. He heard it on amongst the most pitches. Um, and Altuve, obviously, with the whole buzzer controversy. Well, Altuve... Correa said Altuve didn't do it. Hold that thought, yes. But I'm just saying, these are the two guys who, from the player's standpoint, are right in the middle of all this. And their first public statements were Bregman saying, <coughs> I'm really sorry about the choices that were made by... Uh, by me, the team, by the organization, and by me, I've learned from this, and I hope to regain the trust of baseball fans. And Altuve said, I want to say that the whole Astros organization and the team feels bad about what happened in 2017. We feel remorse for the impact on our fans and the games of baseball. They read pre-prepared statements. Bregman literally looked like he was giving like a political campaign speech. It was so rehearsed, and it was so obviously disingenuous. Again, I just don't know who in the PR team, and this dates back a while. Somebody made a good point. I mean, you look at this Astros team between this, um, the Brandon Talman controversy with Roberto Ozuna, the Yoli Gurriel being racist to you, Darvish, in the World Series, even Brady Aiken, who they drafted first overall and then didn't sign because of injury concerns that were publicly disclosed. Uh, how can your PR team just swing and miss this many times in a row without changing it up? Well, they're idiots. I, I don't know what this, this is like. This is really annoying. This is, this is so stupid. This is so – the Astros seem so bad. They are – I would rather – in a Red Sox-Astros series, I want the Red Sox to win every time. Oh, I agree at this point. I want the Astros to go 0 and 160 deaths. Yeah, and, and it just seems like – you know, there are some players who are coming out. I think they're more hated than the Patriots. Oh, I agree. There are some players that are starting to come out, and they do seem – Genuine. The guy's um, not, but no one on the team. Seems no, there, there are a few I think who do. Who's um, still on the team? Altuve and Bregman, to their credit, they did stay at their lockers and answer questions for a half hour after. Um, but even again, when Altuve, Jared Caribas of Barstool tweeted this out, you know, Altuve made himself available in the clubhouse, but when he was asked about the buzzers, all he did was refer to the league's investigation, not finding anything. Um, and again, flat out said they didn't exist. Um, you know, Springer, to his credit, said, I feel horrible for our sport, our game, our fans, our city, our organization, and the way that our team is being viewed. Um, I think Springer's genuine. I mean, Correa, you know, before we get into what he said about Altuve, Correa, you know, he apologized. He said he understood the impact it had on the team, the legacy, and their accomplishments. Um, and Correa, to his credit, he was the only player to flat out put his name on the line and say, we did not use buzzers. That's bullshit. Well, that's what you should be saying. And I think you said this last week. If you did not use buzzers, you have to bang on the fucking table making sure everyone knows you didn't use buzzers. Because the trash can's caveman technology. The buzzers take it to another another level. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with the buzzers, Gary Sanchez had what already might have been the best quote in the Yankee season. He said, if I hit a home run to send my team to the World Series, my teammates are ripping my pants off. I'm so excited. Um, and, and it's just interesting. You know, you read <coughs> all these quotes and all these pushbacks. I mean, the Dodgers have probably been the most outspoken team. Um, Cody Bellinger went as far to say, you know, they cheated for three years. They stole a World Series from us. Altuve stole an MVP from Judge. Ross Stripling said, you know, we're definitely going to have to consider headhunting and beating players when we play the Dodgers. Um, 
But uh, to me, the three biggest legacies that took a hit in this, um, and Trevor Bauer, this is the whole thing with Trevor Bauer. He doesn't want to play the villain in this whole thing, but he just said, you know, whether it was them using a foreign substance on the ball to get more revolutions on their fastball from the pitching standpoint, or whether he was calling Bregman out the whole time. You know, he just said, you had these guys like Bregman and the Astros pitching staff, Justin Verlander, who not only did denied that they did anything wrong, but attacked Bauer's character. Um, and Bauer's whole thing is, you know, for you to attack my character and then be proven wrong and then re- still refuse to apologize, you're a piece of shit. Um, Ryan Braun. Yeah, he compares it to Ryan Braun. He said it was the same thing, where it cost what these guys did cost people jobs. And we're going to talk about this lawsuit with Mike Bolsinger in a little bit. Um, but there are guys who lost their careers um, because of the Houston Astros. And I, to me, the three biggest legacies that took the hit, I mean, Verlanders in his interview pretty much just deferred everything. I don't think Verlander's legacy is going to take that much of a hit. Well, because he's not a hitter. Yeah. I think in the eyes of the baseball players themselves, Verlander's reputation took a hit. Yes. Um, but and, Verlander's still slam dunk first battle at Hall of Fame. And to me, it's Altuve and Bregman. I mean, those two guys, Altuve, we still have no proof that the buzzers weren't used. And until Altuve flat out denies it, the speculation is going to be in the air. And Bregman, again, we there is data that showed Bregman received some of the most trash cans on the team. And all we did was run his math about how great it was and speak about how the team did nothing wrong. And now he doesn't even have the balls to really backtrack and apologize. He's a piece of shit. Like, they're all pieces of shit. You have to own it. It's at time and t- just just own mistakes. It's a really it's just a better way to live life. It is a you will be. It's just how you're supposed to handle crisis. I should be a fucking PR rep. I would just say own it. That's what I tell every time. And you know what? If they come, if Altuve said I did it, I'm sorry. You can't really come back from that. Like, they, what's the next question? You just say I did this. I was wrong. I'm sorry. Or if you didn't do it, you say I didn't do it. But you just tell the truth, man. No, I'm I'm totally with you there. I think the most interesting point Trevor Bauer brings up is, you know, in Bauer's mind, baseball players knew that this was going on for two, three years. Um, And the MLB did nothing about it until Mike Fires went on the record. And it's just really scary to think that if Fires never spoke out, this cheating would have just totally been allowed to happen. And it seems like Rob Manfred wouldn't have acted. And regardless of... Oh, God, Manfred. Regardless of what you think about the punishments, and again, I do think... You know, the players should be punished aside from the cheating. But even a quote from Luis Severino, he said, you know, I'll never get back the loss of confidence that I had because when I got roughed out by the Astros, I was watching countless hours of video just to figure out if I was trying to tip pitches and what was wrong. And you find out Severino was not doing anything wrong. They just knew what was coming. (laughs) And it's just the fact that, you know, Manfred is doing all of these changes to, quote unquote, upgrade the brand of baseball. But when the game itself won't act to purge cheaters until absolutely necessary, but in the meantime, they're going to propose all these funky rule changes. To me, that's the biggest underlying issue of this entire scandal. Are we really? Manfred, go away. Astros, go away. Just, it's tough. And I loved what Bellinger said. I loved when Bellinger, when people talk about Aldube, people really look to him not letting the guys rip the jersey off as a big thing. That seems to be a really like key thing in the eyes of the other players. So Correa, like you said, responded to Bellinger saying, the problem I have is when players go out there and they don't know the facts, they're not informed about the situation, and they just go out there and go on camera and just talk. Um, 
he could uh, Correa earlier had conceded that the Astros stealing signs was wrong, but added that the comments about Houston continuing to cheat were off base. He said, when Bellinger talks about that we cheated for three years, he either doesn't know how to read, is really bad at reading comprehension, or is just not informed at all. The commissioner's report clearly says that those activities were conducted in 2017. 2018, nothing happened. 2019, nothing happened. It was just talented players playing the game of baseball with passion and winning ball games. In Correa's mind, the Astros earned and deserved the 2017 title. He broke down the runs the team scored in the World Series to the Athletic and noted that the title-clinching Game 7 was played in Los Angeles with no cheating on the road. But again, this whole thing, too, when you found out about Codebreaker, there is specific evidence that this stuff also did occur on the road. Like, to me, this is just another thing. Put your foot in your fucking mouth. It's just So many times, it's just better to not say anything. And the Astros just don't realize that. They're going to be... Altuve's going to get a lot of hit-by-pigeons. Yeah. But one thing that Correa did say, uh, which is very interesting, is that um, he said that Josh Reddick, Tony Kemp, and Altuve were ones who did not take part in the trash can scheme. Uh, Correa said— Weren't there videos of Altuve at bats with trash cans? With a handful. But again, if you looked at that data that was on that website, I think Altuve was like 3%. Yeah. Like it was glaringly the lowest. And Altuve, according to Correa, would say, I don't want this. I can't hit like this. Don't you do that to me. He played the game clean. Um, so this would be an interesting thing. You know, if, if Altuve wore a buzzer but didn't take part in the trash can scheme, you know, where does that leave us with his legacy? I, I know his legacy is really – he's in a tough spot because he – on that lineup, he's got the best Hall of Fame case. It will be very – I'm very excited for when he gets on the ballot in 10, 15 years. It was also interesting. Correa said uh, Jim Crane's apology came from someone who doesn't play the game of baseball. But even if you don't play the game of baseball, if you're an owner of a major league team, unless you're a terrible owner, you're at least watching your team play in some capacity. George Bush was watching baseball. And you should know. George Bush owned a baseball. You should know in anything. If you know when, if you know that something is going to happen, and we'll extrapolate this outside of baseball, it's going to be easy to complete the task if you know exactly what to do or exactly what's coming. You could always just delete the rows of data. It's true. No, it's so easy. It's no different to put it in Jim Crane's world. Like... From a business standpoint, like it's insider trading. If you know what stocks are going to go up, you're going to invest in them and make a lot of money. Like it is insider trading. I had an inside tip that I probably should have acted on, but I did not, and now it's a public deal, and I missed my opportunity. So Mike Bolsinger, I mean journey, journeyman pitcher, um, he's actually suing the Houston Astros um, for personal damages as well as the $31 million in bonuses they got for the postseason World Series title run. Uh, for most of the money going to charities in Los Angeles focusing on bettering kids' lives as well as to create a fund for retired baseball players who need financial assistance. Uh, Bolsinger said there's a message to be sent to youth out there. It was awesome to grow up and watch the game played the right way. We kind of drifted from that. Something we can really express to these kids. You don't have to cheat to get where you want to go. Um, Bolsinger, again, journeyman guy, but in his last ever big league appearance, he was lit up for four runs, four hits, and three walks in a third of an inning, 29 pitches on August 4th, 2017 in Houston. Um, He was 29 years old, a relief pitcher. um, And again, there were uh, the most bangs in that entire game did occur when Bolsinger was on the mound. Um, and again, the team was up so many runs by the time they faced Bolsinger. Um, Dylan G also wrote about this in The Athletic. So I think to me, one takeaway is not only were they using this whole scheme to get an edge, it was almost like they were saying a deliberate fuck you to these teams where they would already be up so many runs. But it's like, well, let's just keep cheating and embarrass you. They're so bad. Do you think there's any credence to this lawsuit? No. There's a, he's not going to win. I think it's more to put these guys 
I think in a best case scenario, he gets these Astros all on trial, having to speak, having to speak, speak right? under oath, having to speak. I, I guess, right? What else could he be asking? What else is he trying to do here? I mean, I don't think he's gonna. Win. Do you think he's gonna win? No, I think there'll be a settlement of some kind. But Listen, I don't think a settlement's not what he should go for. He should go to get the Astros to indict themselves. I mean, I think this could. Uh, to be honest with you, I think there's gonna be enough pitchers who could step forward and say the Astros had some hand in rooting my career, whether it's fair or not. Class action? That this could turn into an abs- like a ridiculous class action lawsuit from the standpoint of so much of it is arbitrary, but there's also at the same time a case to be made. Jim Crane's going to end up losing the team. Uh, I just, uh, again, you as an owner, I just don't understand how, and again, this goes back I, I'm sorry, Rob Manfred, that we're just dumping on you all show, but No, it's okay. You know, you allowed an owner who not only condone a culture that, you know, spoke out in favor of, you know, sexual assault, you know, violators, um, but also allowed cheating and had and a, the owner o- openly said, I should not be held accountable for this. Even though, again, if you're the CEO of a company and the shit hits the fan, CEO is the one who's on the hook. And that's literally what this is. He's bad. He's a bad leader. It's the, that's he's just a bad leader. He should take my leadership class, which I don't really like. Different teacher, not the same one that gave me the Manfred tip. But still, the fucking shit, Astros. You gotta grow up. It's so obvious. I'm 22. I, I'm seeing all these flaws. There's so many. Everything they're doing is wrong. So the last thing on the Astros this week, and this to me, and hopefully ever, this to me was the most disheartening thing to read. Um, and this was Chris Archer, what he wrote in the Athletic this week. Um, Chris Archer returned to his hotel room in Houston after a puzzling start against the Astros on August 1st, 2017, and his cell phone buzzed with a FaceTime call from an Astros player. Archer answered, and the player said, Dude, you've got good shit. You were just tipping. Archer had pitched in the seventh inning that night in a 6-4 raise win, but on a few swings, it seems like the Astros hitters knew what pitch was coming. Um, The player on FaceTime, whose name Archer won't disclose, had his answer. He was tipping his pitches. It was flexible. Or fixable. Archer said it was pretty messed up. The whole thing is messed up. It sucks when you dedicate your whole life to something and someone's out there doing some shady shit like that. To me, the fact that these players not only cheated but were sending red herrings elsewhere to divert attention from the whole situation. That, and lying to your friends. And lying to your friends. That to me is as bad as it gets. Lying to your friends is sad. That's just like – that's just sad, man. Yeah, lie to, don't lie to your fucking friends. Just shut up. How do they ask – did no one understand what they were doing? Did, did everybody just... Did they hold fucking team miss the boat that badly? And here's the most interesting part. Archer wouldn't name names, but he did say one of the players he's referring to is one of the Astros' top two players. For argument's sake, let's say Altuve and Bregman there. Probably, was he boys with Bregman? For what it's worth, on Team USA in the 2017 World Baseball Classic, Archer and Bregman were teammates. Again, you don't want to point fingers with no concrete evidence, but in my mind, based it's on the info we have, it was Bregman. It's pointing to Bregman. Who is such? He's a he's a douche. If I'm Jews, can't have nice things. It's yeah, another hey, example. Just let's do a quick draft. Which Astros would you like to throw out most? It's Bregman right now for me. Bregman one. I probably go Altuve two because he stole that. Bellinger said he stole an MVP from Judge. Yeah, I just think it's those – honestly, I just think it's those two guys in my mind. Like Josh Reddick, I truly believe, was not a part of the scheme just because he to me seems like – like you know, just an old-school baseball player yeah. who would like to just like grit his teeth and play. You know, Springer seemed genuinely remorseful, so I'm okay with him. You know, Correa has been hurt half the time the past few years anyway um, and did put his name out and vehemently denying the buzzers. Um, so for me, 
it would be in order Bregman one, Verlander two, and Altuve three. Verlander hasn't said a fucking thing. Verlander, who loves to go on Twitter. And that's my biggest thing, is that Verlander was so outspoken criticizing other players around the league these past few years and defending his team. And now when the onus is thrown back at him, radio silence. It's a bad look for Verlander. The optics are poor. Optics are very poor. So hopefully next week we won't have anything to talk about with the Astros. But again, like we said, they like to shoot themselves in the foot, so... Chances are we probably will. Um, This is our last Sunday for a while coming up without baseball games. The first spring training games of the year start next Sunday, so that's cool. Just found out I have a free MLB TV account for the season uh, as a Yankee season ticket holder, so I was pretty stoked about that. Yes, I will share. Don't worry. Thank Um, you. And all that said, any concluding thoughts for this week's show? Well, let me just think. Who do I have to say? Who do I have to tell to go fuck themselves? Manfred, go fuck yourself. Bregman, go fuck yourself. Jim Crane, go fuck yourself. I think that's it for this week. Pretty good week other than those three guys. Let me ask you this. Because um, I, I do like to end on a positive note with like a little bit of a, uh, a good debate, I guess. So, yeah, we were talking about before MLB Network did their um, top 100 players. I'm going to just go through like the top 20. And you tell me if you have any bones to pick. Yeah, I have one. There's one thing that seemed a little... Uh, one thing that's... Uh, Worthwhile. I like that judges in front of Altuve. Just for the I was the most the an interesting discussion would be right there. Soto, Soto eleven, Acuna twelve. I think the difference is I think Soto. I think Acuna is a little more dynamic run of the bases, but I just think Soto is going to hit for a higher average. Going to have a higher on base percentage. The power numbers are going to be comparable. Acuna's going for 50-50. And but again, it's the recency bias. I mean, Soto helped lead that team to a World Series title. Um, but the top ten players themselves, I don't really have any problem with Lindor at ten, Arenado at nine, Degrom at eight, Cole at seven. And then Rendon, Bregman, Mookie, Bellinger, Yelich, and Trout. I think the only thing I would do, honestly, is I would move Rendon down to... I would move him after the pitchers. Yeah, I would have Cole and DeGrom at 6-7. and seven. I'd actually have them both over Bregman. And I would have Lindor over Arenado. I would have Bregman... Because I would, I, I I would think... have Cole 5, DeGrom 6. I love Arenado, so I'd actually go Arenado over Rendon. And then from there, it's kind of whatever. Other than that, though, I would say they did a, a quality job with these rankings. Not bad. There's a Eugenio Suarez at 35 is pretty good. DJ LeMahieu in there at 37 for the Yanks. You love to see it. They had a really good year. So MLB Network, good job with your Bad showing by the catcher position. Yes. Like, but again, how many catchers would you rank in your top? Two. 100 players. How many they put? Two. Just JT and uh, Gary's in there. No, there's at least three. Wilson Contreras. Contreras, Gary, Real Muto. I would say no. There's probably four. I'm assuming Grandal was in there also. Yeah. Okay. But I think those are the only four I would put. Yeah. Unless right. they put Mitch Garver, which would be a real surprise. Oh, and Mitch Garver. So, you know, five, six catchers. Not terrible. Not terrible. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of the weekend. Have a great President's Day holiday. And with Bryce Holden, my name is Chase Midorski, and this is the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. <laughs>